O winter, bar thine adamantine doors, the north is thine, there hast thou built thy dark, deep-founded habitation. Shake not thy roofs, nor bend thy pillars with thine iron car. William Blake Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank you all for joining me this week. Uh, if this is your first week, welcome. Uh, please enjoy and go back and listen to the back catalog if you like it, and subscribe. And for those joining uh, again, thank you for returning. Uh, I hope you are having a good week and enjoyed last week's episode. Uh, this week, uh, we're going to be talking about and probably finishing up kind of the remaining region of Asia, uh, this North Asia Siberia, what have you. Uh, so this is the vast northern portion that runs essentially from the Pacific Ocean to the Ural Mountains in the west. Uh, now we will be returning to the DNA study laid out by Melinda Yang uh, that we've used the last couple of episodes um, that goes over the various humans uh, who have been in this region and have coalesced into at least three possibly four broad hereditary groups. Now, this is just genetically speaking. Uh, they were probably much more diverse linguistically and culturally speaking. Uh, and also, there were probably groups that were some ratio or combination between these groups and possibly some smaller groups we don't have genetic evidence of just yet. Now, uh, those genetic groups are the Amur, the ancient North Siberians, the Paleo-Siberians, and possibly the Steppe Ancestry. At least that's what they referred to as by Yang. Um, now, I'll deal with the Steppe Ancestry group first, because I can already hear you uh, asking, what do you mean possibly? Uh, this has been found with the DNA evidence, right? Yes, however, the oldest example of extractable DNA belonging to this uh, broad genetic group dates to around 3000 BC. It's probably older than that, but is it, it is a mix of a number of older genetic lineages, some of which wouldn't have been able to mix together until right at the start of our current season. Um, remember how I mentioned uh, much of Central Asia would be hard to cross safely or live in large numbers and would have left groups ex largely isolated. Um, this group emerges right in the border regions of um, the central and western Eurasian steppe, uh, the Caucasus, Siberia, and Central Asia, the very far west, essentially, of northern Asia. Uh, so this group is a mixture of hunter-gatherers from the Caucasus, Eastern Europe, people uh, moving north from Iran in the Middle East through the now more hospitable Central Asia. Uh, and, from, uh, and from the next group, we will focus on the ancient North Siberians. So it's possible that this group is emerging right now. Uh, but my guess is it's probably sometime just after um, our current uh, season. So right around 6,000 BC to a little bit after. 
Uh, you're probably seeing a lot more migration into the regions and groups kind of reforming and forming into uh, something new. Um, but to get back to it, we will focus on, again, the ancient North Siberians. Uh, these are one of the uh, population groups that will contribute or are contributing to the steppe ancestry. Now, uh, this is probably the oldest lineage of Homo sapiens to reach North Asia, or one of the oldest, if not the oldest. Uh, the oldest DNA found belonging to this group dates to around 33,000 years ago. And this was found near the Yana River. Uh, this is in the far north of the Saka Republic region of Russia. And this feeds into the Siberian Sea portion of the Arctic Ocean. So, um, and there are more recent remains dated to this group. Uh, that were found further south near Lake Baikal, and they were date, uh, dated to multiple periods, some as old as 24,000 years ago, and some as recent as 17,000 years ago. Now, I wasn't able to ge geolocate where these remains were found exactly, uh, but using Google Maps and its measuring tool, I found that the Yana enters into the sea and the northeast shores of Lake Baikal, is around 1,300 miles from each other, which is around 2,100 uh, kilometers. Uh, so I think it's safe to say that these people had very large range. And what these people had to suffer through to survive during the various climatic shifts happening, uh, you know, all through this time period, uh, must have been brutal, especially during the Younger Dryas. Um, the regions they would have occupied would have been, you know, a, a mix of deep forests and kind of North Siberia. Uh, to the south, you would have rocky hills and even deserts in some places in the west of what is now Mongolia and the various steppes to the east and west of that region. And they would follow in the wake of various, you know, wild herds, uh, eating what those herds ate for the most part, with the exception of just the the basis of grasses, obviously humans can't really digest that. And they would have been hunting those animals for food, furs, skin, bone, what have you. And these herds would have included uh, uh, wild deer, uh, antelope, um, things uh, similar to goats, ungulates. Uh, of course, wild horses, uh, very important, as well as mammoths which, of course, have steadily become, or would have steadily been becoming rarer and rarer. Uh, because speaking of mammoths, uh, more and more evidence shows that these creatures lasted later than we initially believed. I know when I was in grade school, the popular consensus is that they had mostly gone extinct around 10,000 B.C. Um, of course, this was thrown into question during the mid to late 90s when remains were found on Wrangell Island. Uh, this is a island is located in modern Russia's far east. It sits in the Chukchi Sea region of the Arctic Ocean, so a little bit further uh, east than uh, the where the Yana River enters out to the sea. 
Uh, and this island contains mammoths that had been isolated from the mainland and lived on the island right up until around 2000 BC. Um, and they had been isolated for so long they had even begun to develop um, insular dwarfism. And of course, since then, finds in the mid 2000s showed uh, that some had lived on St. Paul Island in Alaska until around 3800 BC. Uh, and in a paper, I think that showed up in Nature in October of 2021, uh, Wang et al. showed that there is substantial evidence uh, that it's possible that mammoths survived much later than previously thought on mainland Asia and North America, with them lasting in Siberia to about 5,300 and North America up to around 6,500 BC. Now, the ancient North Siberian groups were not the only group in this region. There were also the Paleo-Siberians. Uh, they occupied more of the Pacific region of North Asia, but they did span back towards uh, Baikal and Mongolia as well, though they probably wouldn't have gotten quite as far west as the uh, ancient uh, North Siberians. And these people were a mixture of either uh, a breakaway group of uh, ancient North Siberians or their immediate uh, predecessors. So, say, um, either the North Siberians had a split or um, there's some precursor population that split into two and um, one of those became the ANS group and the other became the Paleo-Siberians, uh, which um, uh, excuse me. Um, also, the this uh, this group uh, that became the Paleo-Siberians, uh, um, they would have mixed probably some with a group coming up from East Asia at a point known as the Tian Yuan lineage. Um, I won't be talking about them much. Uh, they've disappeared by the point in our season we're getting to. Um, uh, but they would have been mixing in with the both the ancient North Siberians and the Paleo-Siberians. Um, but uh, they probably weren't that numerous at at least in general, um, they were kind of a, a break away from the rest of the East Asians in, uh, in, in what is now modern China. In terms of lifestyle, the Paleo-Siberians were very similar to the um, uh, North Siberians. Um, but I'm sure groups on the coast uh, had access to more maritime resources like, uh, you know, Obviously, you have fish in the river, but you would have a larger fish you could catch and pull from the sea. Uh, of course, you'd have access to a lot more shells, not to mention seals. Uh, seals are a very important uh, source of protein for a lot of uh, peoples living in these colder climates. Um, you know, not just for um, their meat, but also their furs and their fats and things like that. Um and I should note that there was plenty of mixture between the North Siberians and the Paleo-Siberians. By and large, these groups, you know, 
they are I'm trying to think of the best way to put this they are distinct but you can see that there is a certain level of intermixing um, probably obviously in the regions that they cohabitated um, whether this was done peacefully or not obviously it's up for debate I would imagine that there was some very peaceful coexistence and in some cases probably not that's just you know kind of the way things work although with the climate i'm inclined to think it may have been slightly more peaceful in this region than in others uh, it's probably easier to have good neighbors to team up to uh, have these large hunts uh in terms of you know just getting as much meat as possible it's probably easier working with larger groups than not also during the winter um when hunter-gatherer groups tend to kind of uh, coalesce together, um, you know, you obviously have smaller bands during most of the year, but then when the weather turns uh, worse, uh, they tend, you know, hunter-gatherer groups tend to band together uh, to pull resources and to try to um, uh, get uh, hunting and things like that done, um, where it's harder to do, you know, more hands make better work that kind of thing uh and there's probably some level of sharing uh pooled resources from different regions um you know to kind of make the time go easier and of course you do have to marry off your children to non-related uh or not as closely related uh children as well so uh, that is something that you have to keep in mind um and this is something that happens throughout pretty much the entirety of uh, this period that we're talking about. Uh, now, again, keep in mind that this is just genetically, uh, culturally, uh, linguistically. Uh, these groups are probably much more diverse than what we know. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if groups occupying the same river systems would be more closely related linguistically than, say, maybe... Um, genetically if these two groups are occupying different sections of a river or different uh shores of lake baikal yeah just keep that in mind um the final group i need to mention is the amur river group uh, the oldest person with this dna pattern is from fourteen thousand years ago these people occupied their southern portion of north asia i guess uh, and they have been found around the southern shores of Lake Baikal. They don't get uh, quite as far north as the Paleo-Siberians or the ancient North Siberians, but they do get further west than the Paleo-Siberians and further east than the ancient North Siberians. Uh, and they also get further south than both of, than both of those groups. Um, uh, now, the first Americans uh, were descendants from these three groups. And as we briefly mentioned last time, there was still, um, or I say last time, as I briefly mentioned in the last season's episode on North America, there is evidence that shows that there was back migration of some Native American ancestors. And at a couple of periods of time where they went back and intermixed with these earlier uh, Asian populations uh, before they permanently separated. 
Though it is still debated if these bat migrations happened after they got isolated in Beringia, but before they moved into North America, or if it happened after they moved into North America, um, or at least I should say uh, if it happened after they moved into Alaska and then moved back and then moved back into Alaska and from there moved south to you know, the Americas. But we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit later this season when we get to the Americas. Um, Again, it's one of those things that, you know, is kind of debated. It might come up naturally. It might not. I have to shoehorn it in there. Now, very little of the ancient North Siberians, uh, Paleo-Siberians, or the steppe ancestry uh, impacts modern East Asian and Southeast Asian DNA. Uh, there's a little in some places, but it's not over the entire you know portion uh, or peoples living in those regions. Um, but this was probably due to um, the fact that these people were probably never very numerous in the grand scheme of you know human population. Um, And this is due, of course, to the environment being as harsh as it is. But it's also because the Amur groups probably filtered interactions with the groups south of them and the groups north of them, uh, serving as basically middlemen for any trade between the regions. Uh, Of course, the Amur do impact the rest of Asia's DNA. This is due to the various... uh, Tribal confederations that emerge in the region uh, later, like the Xiongnu, the Mongols, etc. And of course, probably earlier than that, the Amur probably were involved at some level um, with the first um, groups in the northern Chinese plain area, as well as with uh, the, I guess, the people that uh, move into Korea after the Zhulman period. But uh, again, more on that in future episodes. Now, unfortunately, there isn't much I can talk about with these peoples uh, when it comes to things like culture or linguistics. Uh, Linguistically, we don't really know, know what the kind of tongues these people would speak. Um... There are, of course, language families associated with the region, uh, and there are several different ones. Um, but I think, from what I've conceived, like most linguists agree that these languages don't really become a thing until later, or at least not anything that's identifiable. And there's a lot of talk about trying to connect the languages of the modern families that are spoken and trying to maybe merge them into a larger family or see how they related to each other. It's a mess uh, for a number of reasons. Um, Partly because some of the groups that uh, had existed, at least into recorded history, have uh, been disappeared. Either they died out or they were absorbed by um, other groups or, you know, or that they were, you know, um, just straight up killed uh, by, you know, either uh, the Mongols or the Russians or the Chinese or what have you. Um, 
but uh, again, that's all stuff for the future. Um, but we do have, you know, obviously they're tools which don't really stand out comparatively to anyone else's. There's nothing that really makes them uh, unique. Um, but we do have um, in part of, I believe it's Western Siberia, closer towards the Ural Mountains, um, the earliest monumental ritual art has been found. Uh, and by the monumental, I think they just mean, you know, um, just large scale. Like, obviously, they had votives and uh, small carvings of things like that. Uh, that's that's not anything out of the ordinary for anyone else, much like tool stuff. But um, before, even before Gobekli Tepe, which, again, you saw four meter tall um, stone steely, the people in this region were carving five meter tall um, larchwood uh, figures. Uh, now, wood is not the same as stone, but uh, again, five meters, we're talking, you know, 16 feet, uh, give or take. So they're, you know, they are, you know, cutting down these large trees or largish trees and then stripping bark and then them treating them and carving them to resemble very human figures. Um, unlike the uh, Gobekli Tepe ruins, which if those T-pillars are meant to represent humanity, um, the Larchwood figures are much more straightforward. They have human faces. Uh, they have these very intricate uh, lines kind of carved through them uh, or around them, kind of in a very pattern design. Um, so, you know, they do have their own kind of Neolithic artwork or well, not, not architecture, but their own their own kind of special um, spiritual practices uh, that is, uh, you know, fairly unique. And I believe that these were posited to have kind of been built in kind of a circular pattern, um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, all kind of grouped together. Although there are some people that say that, uh, that know that they were kind of spread out a little bit more and maybe each had their own region. Um, and to go back, um, obviously there is a lot of attempts to kind of connect modern indigenous groups living in the area uh, to, you know, their modern rituals to their ancient ones. Um, I don't know if I'd quite go that far. I definitely think there is, you know, a decent amount of overlap, uh, but how they're living, what they're living on uh, might have changed a good bit, especially with the mammoths dying out. Uh, mammoths are very important. Uh, mammoths hunt, mammoth hunting isn't something that you'd be doing all the time, even when there's a lot of them. Uh, there's probably just brief periods in the year where you're undertaking that. Um, but Mammoth bones are very important for a lot of um, permanent structures. Uh, wood, things like that, you probably wouldn't use it, or you probably wouldn't use it for anything large scale because you need so much fuel for fire. So mammoth bone is something that's very, very important. Um, especially, I didn't really go into it too much, but um, there are some places in Eastern Europe uh, 
from the last you know kind of glacial maximum period that used large scale um, circular uh, bones or uh, layouts and then basically set up walls made out of mammoth bones and tusks and then they would cover them with furs things like that and something similar I'm sure was done in this region as well um, because again in the winter you can't really move uh, freely in this region uh, you'd have to move further south and if you had to remain in this region uh, you'd want as sturdy and as uh, thick of a um, barrier as possible um, so yeah so there is that um, of course you also have uh, this is a region that's kind of known for or at least popularly imagined to be kind of the the earth uh, the birthplace of shamanism um, in fact the word shaman is believed to have come from um, a I forget the specific language, but uh, it's thought to come into Russian from one of the languages of the Siberian region. Um, now, that is debated, and we'll get more into that later, um, but you know, medicine men, shamans, whatever you want to call them, uh, this is something that you see in this region uh, last for quite a while, and while we Again, we can't prove that it existed at, at this point in our timeline. Uh, it is interesting to note that you know Native Americans have shamanistic practices as well. Um, their rituals are obviously different, but there is some level of overlap. Uh, so you can see that there's probably a common uh, origin point. Uh, and of course, you have shamanistic and medicine men in. Uh, sub-Saharan Africa as well especially among the Khoi and the San um, now we obviously can't say if this is limited to lineage or if every person practices their own type of medicine like how you'll see in some of those uh, sub-Saharan African places if there are different types um, you know acknowledged or different uh, medicines practiced by different types of shamans if there is an overlap between the types of medicine that shamans can practice or if they're just limited to one variety this is all speculation um, but i'm willing to bet that they definitely had some type of precursor to shamanism um, what it was called whether or not it was actually called shamanism or um well, obviously it wasn't called shamanism because, again, that's a modern construction or at least a more recent construction. But if they had people acting as shamans, whether or not they were called shaman, what have you, I'm willing to bet that, yes, it was some, some precursor to that, if nothing else. Um, another thing, uh, dogs were probably first domesticated in this... Uh, region, uh, Siberia. Um, and if not Siberia, uh, it was probably somewhere in uh, Japan when it was connected to Siberia via land bridge. Um, so these people obviously were very good with animals, uh, at least initially. Um, they had to contend with wolves, uh, so they 
chose to befriend them rather than just fighting them. I think that says a lot about their understanding of the animals we're having to deal with. Um, another animal that they're probably having to deal with that people probably don't think about too much are tigers. They There are Siberian tigers. Uh, they do exist. Of course, they're very endangered these days, but uh, a number of places across North Asia had to deal with them. Uh, dogs would probably help with that. Dogs would probably help with hunting a lot of different games. So uh, it's not uh, it's not a mystery to see why you know you would want to kind of um, uh, cultivate that resource. Dogs were also probably you know good winter food. Uh, you breed a lot of them. Uh, you might have a couple of spare or deficient dogs that you might want to butcher and eat, especially during the, the colder winter months. As distasteful as we might find it, it's definitely something that happened. Uh, we have you know dog bones in a number of places. Um, but that is to say, not to say they did not care about their dogs. I know, uh, I think in Mongolia there is a, you know, Dogs are very highly prized, especially well-trained uh, dogs, um, and that you know that kind of ties into a lot about um, you know a lot of theories about uh, these early animalistic or animal worshiping religions. Um, these people did love these animals; they they hunted them, they preyed on them, but they they definitely respected their power. They would call on their spirits to try to draw them to them in real life uh, things like that uh, at least that's the prevailing theory and you know a dog you know uh, dogs would be seen as valuable protectors for a lot of these peoples uh, and they would be probably very good um, their dog spirits would be very good tools in the afterlife or for you know religious purposes and drawing these animal spirits to you uh, they would serve humans the same way in the spiritual world as they did the physical world. Um, I can certainly see that being the case. So, Make of that what you will. Um, I really wish I had a lot more to go over in terms of specifics. Um, but I do think this is one of those regions that you know has had to deal with just kind of... Um, you know, lack of focus, lack of interest... Um, just because where it is, where it's located, uh, how, you know, environmentally, it's probably not considered like a bastion of civilization, but obviously they did make contributions. They, they domesticated the dog, at least initially. Um, dogs will become even more important. Uh, they'll be used for uh, herding, things like that. Um, so yeah, that's all stuff to keep in mind when thinking about this region. Um, we will return here next season. Um, I think by... I have to double check my notes, but it's very possible domesticated horses will come at least in the western end of North Asia uh, by the end of our next season. Um, and then of course they'll spread out from there. Um, but that stuff will I'll have to double check and it's something you can look forward to. Um, but yeah, uh, also I think next season, uh, 
regions will get subdivided a little bit more because there are more specifics to talk about. Um, this region, uh, some people consider this the longest, I guess, holdout for Paleolithic uh, cultures um, because, I mean, agriculture doesn't even show up until, uh, you know, 2500 BC, which is very late, uh, you know, worldwide. It's either... Um, it's either Australia is considered Paleolithic the longest, or this region, uh, and then of course you enter the Neolithic. Um, but that's up for debate. Again, those are kind of arbitrary because those terms don't 100% apply to really any one region. They're just kind of general broad terms. But we'll get into that, you know, going forward. Um. But yeah, I think that's a good place to start uh, or to stop for this week. Um, and next week, uh, we will be moving to Australia and uh, kind of that region. So we'll talk about the Aboriginal people there. Uh, that might be a two-parter, maybe maybe three, maybe one. I, um, I've been making my notes, but there's a couple things. I don't know if it quite belongs in our current time frame or if it needs to be pushed back to the next. Um, that's something for me to figure out, though. You just have to show up next week and listen and enjoy. Um, if you are not subscribed on your various platforms that you're listening to me on, please do uh, rate me as you see fit uh, on those same platforms. Um, if you have any feedback or questions, please feel free to email me at warfare or I'm sorry, waradrevpod at gmail.com. Or you can reach me on Twitter, which I'll try to include the link on in the episode description. Uh, of course, again, I am on YouTube as well. Uh, I have my uh, podcast uploaded there uh, as of right now. At the same time, they're uploaded on other platforms. Uh, if Windows gets rid of their video editing, software I might have to delay publishing on YouTube by a couple of hours uh, otherwise um, you know eventually I'll replace that and get it set back up but uh, that might take a little bit of time uh, I've also been doing some other stuff on the YouTube channel um, it's not quite in the same vein as this which is just a nice educational audio podcast that's a little bit more uh, hectic over there and uh, involves some video game stuff for some things I plan on talking about during some bonus episodes going forward. Um, but that's for October. Uh, for right now, just keep listening in for the good old-fashioned history content. So thank you all for joining me. I hope you have a good rest of the day and a good rest of your week. Thank you all. Goodbye.